All right, you may be seated. Good morning. Welcome to Byfield Parish. Uh, I want to mention a couple of things. Uh, just as this morning, we had a baptism, uh, recognizing two young lives. Uh, we also recognize that there is an end that comes to life, and we've had to experience that more readily here at Byfield in the past couple of weeks. Joe Knapp, who worshipped this church for many, many years, and and was very much a part of this body until the past couple of years. He really wasn't able to be here uh, because of age and infirmity. He passed away earlier this week. Also, Bobby Tucker, who worshiped here for a long time, uh, passed away as well. We don't have any details yet on the service for Bobby Tucker, for those who knew him. Uh, but for Joe Knapp, that service will be here at the church on February 25th. And so there will be more details uh, through the... Through the um, other communication means and also through the obituary and all of that. Uh, so just wanted to mention that. Also, Chuck Davis, I don't know if he's in here right now, had asked me if he could make an announcement about the lunches that take place after the church services. And I don't believe he had an opportunity to do that. So I will just mention there is a lunch, I believe today, am I correct in that, after, after the church service today. And that's a great time to build community over in the parish house. Is that correct? Over in the parish house. Thank you. Uh, so with that, we'll dive into today's message. Today's sermon focuses on power, more specifically on God's power. This is a theme that we have been hitting on in recent weeks that we are going to address more fully today. So I have a question for you. What is the most powerful physical force you have ever interacted with. Maybe it was a large vehicle or a machine. For some, it might have been an animal, maybe a large bull or even, I don't know, an elephant. The most powerful physical force I have ever experienced firsthand is the Golly River, which is a river down in West Virginia. I went whitewater rafting there when I was about 18 or 19 years old with my dad and a few friends. And the Golly is an unusual whitewater river because there's, there's this class system many of you all might be aware of for uh, whitewater. And the Golly has class five rapids, which are basically like the biggest rapids you can go down and hope to survive. So normally when you go whitewater rafting, they give you a little safety talk at the beginning. And they say, if you fall out of the raft, get your feet facing downstream and just, just wait for rescue. Wait for somebody to throw you a rope, wait until the rapid's done. On the golly, when they do the safety talk, they say, if you fall out of the raft, we will tell you at the beginning of each rapid, which side of the river you need to swim to. Do not wait for rescue. And if you swim to the wrong side of the river, there's a very high probability of you getting trapped under a rock and die. So it's a, it's a pretty intense safety talk, right? So I'm like 18 years old and I, this is a theme with this sermon series of me doing stupid things. So me and my dad are, and our friends were, were going down and kind of get through the first little rapid and the second rapid's coming up and all of a sudden our guide stands up 
in the back of our rap and starts yelling things that are not appropriate to repeat in a church. So I will not do so. And he's yelling at the raft in front of us. And he's saying, you're going the wrong way. Go the other way. And we were watching this raft in front of us and it's bobbing along and it hits this rock. It's an eight man whitewater raft and it starts to shake. The raft starts to shake. And all of a sudden you see the people in this raft begin to hop out onto the rock that the raft is pinned against. And then you see the raft slowly going under the rock. And no exaggeration, this river pushed a whole eight-man whitewater raft completely under this undercut rock. And it was a stunning thing to witness from my whitewater my white raft. And you know, we're kind of back paddling. And my whitewater raft guide says, we need to go get those people who are on top of the raft, on top of the rock that has just sucked under a whole raft. And I thought to myself, is this really the best idea? It didn't seem like a good idea at the time. However powerful that river was, and however terrified I might have been by its power, God's power is infinitely greater than any physical force any of us has ever interacted with. As today's verses make clear, God's power is more powerful than any river or sea. He is more powerful than any animal or machine. There is no greater power than God. Today's verses bear witness to that overwhelming power. So if you'd please turn with me to page 52, if you're using the Pew Bibles, we are going to continue reading from the book of Exodus, chapter 14, verses 19 through 31. That's Exodus 14, beginning in verse 19. Hear the word of the Lord. Then the angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them, and the pillar of cloud moved before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land and the waters were divided and the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea. All Pharaoh's horses, his chariots and his horsemen, and in the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels. They drove heavily and the Egyptians said, let us free from before Israel for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea and the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea, 
The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen. All of the hosts of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea, not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Amen. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord remains forever. God uses his power to protect his people and overcome those who resist him. In these verses, we see how God uses his power. He uses it to protect the weak and overcome the strong at the place and time of his own choosing. God's power is undefeatable. It is without comparison. God doesn't operate on the schedule we would prefer. He does operate in conjunction with our faith. Faith in no way determines how much power God has. Faith does affect how and when God uses his power. If we want to see God's power at work, we need to move forward in faith. God's power makes his victory inevitable. Our faith affects our participation in that victory. God places himself in the midst of the battle. The angel of the Lord, God's presence with the Israelites, moves to a different location at the beginning of these verses. He goes from leading the Israelites from the front to protecting them from behind. The Israelites are not a well-organized group of people. They are more like a group of refugees than they are an army. Generally, when you have a large, disorganized mass of people moving in the same direction, those in the back will be the most vulnerable. The back is where those that are sick and weak and slow end up. On the Egyptian side, the reverse is true. The vanguard of an army, those at the front are often the best, most aggressive soldiers. They are the ones that have been trained to shred any resistance so that the troops that follow can have an easier time. God knows the weaknesses of those he fights for and the strengths of those he fights against. If in these verses the Israelites had been instructed to resist the Egyptians with their own strength, they would have been cut to pieces. It would have been a bloodbath. The result would have been a Bronze Age blitzkrieg. The Egyptians would have swept in with their chariots and war horses. 
the resistance of the Israelites would be the same resistance that Chinese spy balloon offered to the Sidewinder missile that took it down last week. God supports his people at their weakest points. He resists those who fight at their strongest. God intervening is not a one-time occurrence. Throughout the Bible and all of human history, God has repeatedly done what he did in these verses. He will continue to operate this way in the future. God's power will cover for the weakness of those who follow him. It will resist the strength of those that go against him. After the angel of the Lord places himself between the Israelite vulnerability and the Egyptian strength, a lull in the action occurs. God fights at the place and time of his choosing. The Israelites, they have to wait through a very long night. They knew they were safe for the time being. God was obviously with them. They knew that God had said in the morning they would pass safely through the sea. But in the darkness of the night, they are stuck in between. They are waiting on God to act. For them, the preceding months have been filled with continual stress. It has been a constant up and down, depending on the whims of Pharaoh and God's actions on their behalf. I'm sure there were many prayers made to God by the Israelites that night, pleading for resolution. This was not the first time in Scripture, it will not be the last, that God's people are waiting on Him to do what He has said He will do. Throughout our lives, we will often find ourselves waiting on God to overcome the enemies of this world. I dislike waiting. As I'm sure you do as well. I've never met anybody that's like, you know, I just really love going to the doctor's office and waiting. I get really antsy. How long is this line going to take at Market Basket? Also, why do I always choose the wrong line? When is this traffic going to get moving? Is the result of my biopsy going to come back tomorrow? If I'm waiting, that means I am not in control. Waiting implies other people's needs and desires are as important as my own. Waiting feels like a waste of time. In the times we are waiting, God is working out his purposes. God is in control even when I am waiting, whether the thing I'm waiting for is big or small. God's plan is much more important than my preferences, not really close. God doesn't waste time 
when he waits to act. His holding back is strategic. It is reasonable to wonder when God will accomplish his purposes as we wait. We don't need to wonder whether he has sufficient power. These verses are one of the times in Scripture where God's power is most clearly exemplified. I've mentioned before that for ancient people, water was the substance that embodied the chaos of the material world. It was both necessary for life and a destructive force. You didn't have enough water, your crops wouldn't grow. You would get dehydrated and die. But with too much water, there would be destruction from flooding. This situation in which God uses wind to turn water into dry land is an undeniable manifestation of what he is capable of. God is proving to the Israelites There is nothing in this world that he lacks the power to do. Every natural power will do what he wants it to do. Control over water is often a way that God shows his power throughout the Bible. Happens in the Old Testament multiple times. God splitting the Red Sea in these verses is one example of many. It also happens... In the flood in Genesis, later in the Old Testament, God stops the flow of the Jordan River, the storm that leads to Jonah being thrown overboard in other situations. Every time God shows his power over water, we are reminded of the spirit of God hovering over the chaotic waters in Genesis 1. God's power is so great that he can bring order to chaos. In the New Testament, Jesus is identified with God after he controls the waters. It happens in Mark 4 when Jesus controls the storm. It happens again in Mark 6 when Jesus walks on the water. God's power has not subsided in the time since he split the Red Sea. It is easy to confuse God waiting to exercise his power with weakness. Many people, both believers and unbelievers, have not personally witnessed God's immense power. This leads many to conclude God doesn't have power. Nothing can be further from the truth. God's power has not changed. He is just as capable of splitting the Merrimack River or Lake Winnipesaukee as he was of splitting the Red Sea. He lacks a sufficiently compelling reason to do so at the present time. God's power is not a party trick. He doesn't use it to impress us however much we would like to be impressed. The very notion that God needs to prove his power to us is offensive to God. Jesus addresses the demand that he show God's power 
in Matthew 12, some Pharisees demand a sign from Jesus. Jesus responds by saying, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they, repe- for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. God will use his power to accomplish his purposes at the place and time of his choosing. That's the prerogative of having unlimited power. It is often thought by those that lack power in the world that those who have power can do whatever they want with it. This is rarely the case. CEOs of corporations must report to a board. Coaches of football teams get fired by their owners. Even absolute monarchs still have a court that they must be responsive to. People that try to live as if they have unchecked power normally lose that power very quickly. God's power is so great, the only determining factor in how he uses it is himself. God could destroy the whole world as he destroyed the Egyptian army. He could envelop all life in watery chaos. There would be no consequences from God. God not using his power to decimate the whole world this minute is a result of his other attributes, primarily his love. It is not a lack of power. God's absolute power means his victory is inevitable. The Egyptians, they never had a chance in these verses. When I read the account of the Red Sea, I cannot help but ask myself, what the Egyptians must have been thinking. They see the Israelites before them moving forward with walls of water on either side. I think if I had been Pharaoh, I might have been like, maybe chosen a scout, you know? Like, hey, why don't you go see what's going on in there? Corporal, Corporal Pyle, get in there. See what is going on and then come back and report to us. But that's not what Pharaoh did. His whole army just charges forward. This would have been brave if it weren't so suicidally stupid. The Egyptians refuse to acknowledge God's power. By the time they say to themselves, let us flee from before Israel for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. It's too late. God instructs Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea. 
that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. The power of God is terrible for those that oppose it. Really, the Egyptians' only chance for surviving their confrontation with God's power hinged on the Israelites not moving forward in faith. If the Israelites had not moved forward into the sea as God commanded them, the Egyptians would not have been in the position to follow behind them. They would have killed and enslaved the Israelites. Although God would certainly have chosen to destroy the Egyptians with his power in another way. All who resist God's power will be defeated eventually. Israel's faith mattered for how God's power played out in this situation. We know that later in the Old Testament, God allows his power to be restricted by the lack of faith exhibited by Israel. Prior to entering the promised land, God promises to give the land to the Israelites completely. By the time Joshua is giving his farewell speech at the end of the book, that carries his name, we are told the conquest is still incomplete. The problem is not God's lack of power. The problem is the Israelites' lack of faith in action. God's power means his victory is inevitable, even if it doesn't happen at the time we would prefer. The faith of people in God's power impacts their participation in that victory. At present, many Christians seem to have a lot of concern that God's victory is in question. There is no basis for this concern. There is no power in the world that can compete with God's power. He proved his power at the Red Sea. Even more than that, God proved his ultimate power through raising Jesus from the dead. We can wonder how and when God will use his power to bring about his ultimate victory. We do not need to concern ourselves with whether or not his power is sufficient. Such concerns indicate a lack of faith on our part. For many Christians, this lack of faith, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. We don't really believe that God's power is sufficient to overcome the powers of this world. So we don't act in faith. Our lack of faith does not mean God lacks power. It does mean we miss out on being a part of what God is doing. While God does at times work in spite of his people's lack of faith, this is not the norm. If we want to see God's power in action, then we need to move forward in faith. God's power will validate the faith of his people. The power of God is infinitely greater than any worldly power. 
No army is as strong as the Lord. The power of the nations cannot withstand his strength. It is God that created all the natural forces we marvel at. Our closest approximation of God's power, they fail to do justice to his actual power, which is so much greater than we can imagine. Those who go to war with God in this world are initiating a conflict they cannot win. Those who have faith in the power of God are trusting in a strength that cannot fail to win. I'm going to close today's sermon by reading Psalm 46, which recognizes God's power over all creation including the nations that resist him. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage. The kingdoms totter. He utters his voice. The earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes war cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you for the reminder from your word. That your power is greater than any worldly power, Lord. We, we do see a world in chaos. We see our lives at different times in chaos, Lord. And we wonder, we wonder when you will act on our behalf, Lord. Lord, I pray that as we wait, we would trust in your power. That we would trust in your good timing, Lord. Lord, I pray that we would move forward in faith at times, as this passage in Exodus described, and also know that at times you have called us to be silent, to be still, and know that you are God. I pray that you would be with us and that we would have a sense of your presence, Lord, and an awareness of your power. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.